Good morning, my friends. We're going to get that feedback fixed here in a second. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to pray and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, and we thank you for this word from Joshua, and we pray you'd speak to us through it. And we pray in this moment you'd remind us that by your spirit you're offering something to us. Uh, and I pray that we would open our hands to receive and teach us to listen, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, the book of Joshua begins after 40 years that they've spent in the wilderness. Joshua is like the culmination of what has been years and years and years of waiting and wandering in the desert. This is the culmination of everything they've been waiting for. Finally, it's here. It's happening. And some of you may remember, if you've ever read, especially the book of Numbers, you may remember what the life of God's people was like in the wilderness. Uh, it was characterized by disobedience. It was an inherently negative experience, it seems like, at every turn for many of them. They kind of chafe against God's plan. They rebel against what he wants for them. At one point, going so far as to refuse to enter into the land that he's promised them, simply because they're afraid. There's a lack of trust. They see the land and they're afraid. And so an entire generation of God's people miss out on what he specifically promised to them, right? That's the story. This group of people perishes out in the wilderness, but there's another group of people who were with them, remember, who are much younger, many of whom might have seen the Exodus as young children who might have watched that whole process, their escape from slavery in Egypt. That group of people is what Joshua's about. Those who were born as well in the wilderness. This group of people has never known really anything but the wilderness experience. Their whole lives, it seems, have been lived in the desert, right? That's the group of people we're dealing with in the book of Joshua. The wilderness became their whole experience. They were the generation that would finally see. Not Moses, this wilderness generation. They were the ones who would see what God had promised, right? And as they come to the Jordan, there are all these hints. All these hints that something huge is about to happen, right? And something huge does happen, right? We know this from the story. Like, this is where everything finally comes into place, right? When we get... Uh, to, to the Jordan River. They're about to cross into the promised land. We know a few details. Number one, they've already sent spies, okay, specifically to the city of Jericho. They now have an ally, somebody on the inside, right? Remember Rahab? It's this whole amazing story where somehow they have someone on the inside. Beyond that, we know that when they cross the river, there are 40,000 men, soldiers, who go toward the front as they cross the river, prepared for battle, right? All of this is happening. And they don't just cross the river. God parts the waters for them all over again. You've seen this before. It's like a new kind of exodus all over again. God parts the waters and they walk through on dry land, the story tells us. This is telling us something incredible is happening, right? This is finally all of the pieces coming together. It's happening. It's here. This is what we've waited for, this moment, 
And as I was reading through it, it reminded me of, uh, of this one movie. Maybe you guys have seen it. It's called Of Gods and Men. Uh, I think they released it in maybe 2011. It's a French movie, actually. And uh, it's a story of a group of Trappist monks, Cistercian monks, um, who were living in Algeria uh, in the 90s. Okay? They're living in this monastery, uh, and the story is of their martyrdom, how they were killed. And I think the year was maybe 1996 when they would have died. Um, but what's interesting about this movie, what's so unique about the movie, is that it has no soundtrack. There is no background music whatsoever, okay? And if you know anything about cinema, you know anything about movies, right? You know how important the soundtrack is. That background music, it tells us what we're supposed to be feeling, right? It gives us this cue, lets us know something's about to happen, right? It lets us know what's supposed to be the emotion of the moment. But there's none of that. It's just dialogue, just noise from on screen. It's uncomfortable, honestly. For well over an hour, there is no music whatsoever, right? There's this silent kind of tension that's building the whole time. And it's kind of fitting because if you know anything about Cistercian monks, Trappist monks is a particular sect of the Cistercians. Like one of their biggest emphases is silence. And so it's, it's a, an artistic choice the director is making, right? It's a relatively silent movie about silent men. That's what's supposed to be happening, right? It's fitting. So the tension, the silence is just building the whole time. As we know, something bad is going to happen. Something painful is coming. And it all builds to this climax. What's interesting about the movie, though, is the climax is not when they die. The most climactic moment of the, the movie is this scene where they're gathered around the table, sharing a meal together. They've all finally come to this realization that they're most likely going to die at the hands of these terrorists. That this may very well be the last meal they get to share together in this particular way, right? And so what happens is, is one of the monks gets up as they're beginning the meal, and he walks over to this old stereo that's sitting there, puts in a cassette tape of Swan Lake, and the theme from Swan Lake begins to play. It's this incredible moment, because finally it's like, you feel a relief. It's almost like you can exhale finally. After sitting there and waiting in the, the silence, finally something begins to happen. The music begins to play, and this is where they begin to make their peace with what's about to happen, right? They're coming to an understanding of what God is doing in this thing that they're about to suffer. It's like a, a weight lifted off your shoulders, and I feel like this is the same kind of moment for Israel. For years and years and years, the tension has been building, They've been waiting and wondering, and now it's like finally the music is beginning to play. Finally, things are beginning to resolve. Finally, they're beginning to see God's promises fulfilled. It's like this is the crescendo we've been waiting for in the silence. It's built to this moment. It's here now. It's finally happening. And as beautiful as that, that image is of Israel waiting, finally God bringing them to the culmination of his promises, then there's this like awkward and uncomfortable interruption in the telling of the story. What's interesting is we, we read the part of the passage that tells you about them celebrating the Passover. There's something else that happens 
before all of that, right? They don't charge Jericho to attack. We know they've got everything they need. They've crossed the river. God has done something amazing. And it seems like the first thing they're going to do is charge into battle. They're going to go and, and take the land that God has given them. But they don't. They don't charge toward Jericho. They don't organize for battle at all. It's like God is saying, yes, we could do that. But instead, he says, let's have a circumcision. It's like a, it's a weird moment. You're like, wait, what? Excuse me? Like, look, first off, that's kind of a weird thing in such a triumphant moment. Why would we slow everything down, lose our momentum to have a circumcision? Like, like, what are we doing here, right? Not only that, you're going to immobilize this army you just spoke of because apparently they were not circumcised when they were living out in the wilderness. So a lot of them are going to be injured for a number of days. Who knows how long? It's not exactly a great strategy, but this is what God tells them to do. I want you to stop what you're doing. And I want you to, to take care of what you've not taken care of all these years in the wilderness. It seems like this awkward, kind of uncomfortable interruption in the story, but it's, it's really important, right? Circumcision goes all the way back to Abraham. It reminds them of this covenant God made with Abraham. And it's an important thing for them. It, it's something that was lost for a very long time. And when God asked them to, to circumcise these men, he's reminding them of that promise he made to Abraham. He promised Abraham descendants. He promised Abraham a land, a home of his own, right? He promised that ultimately this people that would come from Abraham would be a blessing to the nations, right? He promises all of this. And the circumcision is a reminder like, they're literally marking themselves with God's promises. It's this strange sort of interruption to us, but God is trying to remind them of something. He's reorienting them after years of wondering. He's kind of orienting them in his promises. But that's not all they do, right? We know from this particular passage we read, they also celebrate Passover. God orders them to perform this circumcision, but Passover, it seems, they do just because... They know it's fitting. They do this all on their own. And it's a reminder in the same way. God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. God has done miraculous things in the past, and it's like they're reminding themselves, whatever we face in the land that we're about to enter into, God will deliver us from as well. God has done this, and he will continue to do this. They're reminding themselves of it, right? So the, the story reminds us God's promises are never in question. God's promises are always certain. It's, it's our obedience. It's our trust that's always in question. Our obedience, our trust is what seems to be lacking and not his promises or his ability to fulfill them. It's a reminder as well that the, the wilderness is never permanent. God's people begin to imagine that it is, that this is just their reality as God's people. They will forever be in the wilderness, nomadic, wandering around without a home. But Lent reminds us in this season that God has purpose in the wilderness. There's meaning for us in the wilderness, right? Joshua takes that a step further and reminds us God has something in mind on the other side of the wilderness as well. The wilderness is taking us somewhere. There's something on the other side of the wilderness. Joshua presses that upon us. For Israel, it was the promised land. It was the thing they had been waiting for. It was a home, right? 
For us in the season of Lent, or maybe in the particular sort of wilderness you find yourself in, it's resurrection and new creation. There's always something on the other side of the wilderness. Joshua was trying to help us see. This is the point of the whole story. But here's the problem with the wilderness. Here's the thing. In the wilderness, our memory tends to fail us. This is one of the greatest failures of God's people, memory. The word remember in Hebrew is repeated constantly as you look at the story of the wilderness experience. God is saying again and again, remember. Because for many of the Israelites, again, this experience in the wilderness constituted the majority of their life experience. This is what they had known, right? This is who they had been for so long. And even those who had been in Egypt to see what all had happened, to see the amazing things God did in leading them out of Egypt. For those people, the wilderness experience was so overwhelming that all those things God had done in the past were very little consolation for their present moment in the wilderness. It didn't change anything about their present circumstance. They were still overwhelmed and still hopeless in the middle of it all. There's a, uh, an author by the name of Neil Postman. He, he wrote a book in the 80s called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And this is what he says about life and the way life can be like looking into a mirror. But here's what he says. A mirror records only what we are wearing today while it is silent about yesterday. A mirror records only what you're wearing today and it's silent about yesterday. And he says, ultimately, what happens when we look into the mirror continually is that we vault ourselves into a continuous and incoherent present. The mirror tells us only about today. It's silent about yesterday. And ultimately, we vault ourselves into this continuous and incoherent experience. He's not literally talking about a mirror or our tendency uh, toward narcissism or something. He's talking about our society, our, our tendency toward entertainment and that need we have. But I think that's helpful, a continuous, incoherent present. For God's people in this moment, they find themselves in a continuous and incoherent present. All that exists for them is the wilderness. Nothing before it, nothing beyond it. All they can think about is the present moment, and they're overwhelmed by it. God has nothing before this for us. God has nothing beyond all of this for us. They forgot not only what God had already done for them in the past, they forgot as well what he had promised to do for them. All of it disappeared. Their memory failed under the weight of it all. Their fears kind of swallowed up the memories of what God had done, how faithful he had been in the past, right? And after years of waiting and lamenting, it began to wear on them, right? This fatalistic cynicism began to set in. There was no hope for them, no hope for today or for tomorrow, no memory worth celebrating because it wouldn't matter, right? This is the, the mindset they found themselves in. And all that remained for God's people was this sort of tyranny of their present circumstance. The tyranny of their, their, their present moment, it overwhelmed them. And I feel like that's a thing we can relate to. I feel like that, that wilderness experience is not unfamiliar. If you follow Jesus for very long, I feel like if you've been in the church, I feel like if you've been an adult, that wilderness experience 
is real. It's a thing that, that most of us have experienced at some level. There are moments where we cannot escape the present. We cannot escape the burden of our present experience, the heaviness of it, the heaviness of the news that keeps pouring in, news from work, things that are going on there, news from our families, stuff that's going on with them, news from cable TV, from Twitter, from whatever. We find ourselves overwhelmed with the present moment. It's a thing we all know. One of the best ways I've ever heard it said was this TV executive, actually. His name was Bill Moyer. And what he said about our society is that we live in an anxious age of agitated amnesiacs. There's some alliteration for you. Try to say that five times fast, right? We live in an anxious age of agitated amnesiacs. This is, this is who we are. We live for the longest time in a society where everyone is anxious, everyone is worried, everyone is fearful, everybody is agitated and fed up with the state of current affairs, right? And nobody knows why anymore. Nobody can really put a finger on why they're so anxious or afraid or agitated or fed up because continually there's new stuff to be fed up about, anxious about. Every day, there's this influx of information, right? Every new day, there's new information in your personal life, at a global level, a national level. There's more stuff. And after a while, we can't remember anything else but the present crisis, the present moment, the present circumstance, and everything else fades. All we can think about is the present. We can't remember anything else. It's just all we know. We forget the goodness of God. We forget the beauty of the kingdom of God and what we've seen of it. We forget what God has in mind. All of it just disappears. And all that's left is what's happening right now. You feel hopeless and helpless to change it. You feel just completely paralyzed by the moment. I, I read an article in The Guardian this week. Uh, and it was an article about how parents are supposed to be talking to their children in the middle of the current situation globally, right? We've lived through two years of a pandemic. Now, potentially a third world war starting uh, in Ukraine, uh, inflation, economic struggles, you name it. And the word they used for it was permacrisis. Have you heard this? Permacrisis. And the idea, and I think the subtitle of the article was, your children need to know that the world is not always a safe place. Sure, but it was very dramatic. Permacrisis. And this is the way we, we talk about it, right? And I, I'm, I don't think I want to make my child that anxious or afraid, but this is the way they talk about it, permacrisis. And I'm th sitting there thinking, like, I, I feel like that's how Israel's feeling. They're in a permacrisis. The exodus was hard enough on them. That was traumatic enough. And now 40 years, they've been out in the desert without anywhere to go, not knowing what's coming next. It's perma-wilderness. Like, what are we supposed to do with this? What's next? But what scripture teaches about the wilderness is that God has purpose in the wilderness, right? God is at work in the wilderness. We might say God is especially at work in the wilderness. It's one of the places where God desires to work the most clearly and evidently. The wilderness is a place that is precious to God. And what we're embracing in Lent is that reality that God is at work, especially in the wilderness, there's purpose 
There's meaning. There's something in the wilderness. We can't forget all of that, right? We're reminding ourselves of that. But that purpose, that meaning for the wilderness, it is inextricably tied to what came before it and what is beyond it. You can't understand the present moment without seeing it in that way. You can't imagine that there's nothing before or beyond your present moment. You can't lose sight of these things. What God has done in the past, what God is promising in the future, it helps orient us. It helps make sense of these things. The point of all of it is, is you, you can't function properly in crisis, in the wilderness, in your present circumstance, without orienting yourself, centering yourself in God's story. That's what worship is. That's what this is. And our, our generation's strong point is not commitment or consistency or faithfulness necessarily, because this, to our generation, very often just feels like mandated sort of attendance. It feels like a requirement. It feels like a thing you're supposed to do. It's not that. It's an opportunity for us to orient ourselves in the midst of our present circumstance in the larger story of what God is doing. Because if I don't do this, if I don't choose to orient myself, my present moment in the story of what God has done before, what God is doing beyond all of this, then I forget it. I lose sight of it. I become blind to it. And that's why we see this seemingly awkward and uncomfortable little interruption in the story. They're placing their present overwhelming moment in the context of God's story. And we have to do the same thing. They stop to remember the covenant. They stop to remember God's promises. They stop to worship before they ever take another step, right? They want to mark themselves as unique among all the nations they are about to confront. They want to remember that their story is different, that what God is doing in them is different, right? They reorient themselves. That is a pattern for us as God's people. We have to continually be doing this together, reorienting ourselves so that we don't forget. And I don't know if you notice, like, this moment is particularly bold. This is an incredibly bold moment of worship because they've just stepped into someone else's territory, right? They've just stepped into a hostile environment and they choose as soon as they step into this hostile environment, to remind themselves of these things, to stop, to reflect, to pray and to worship, to remember all these things, to mark themselves in this way, right? But think about it. There's no guarantee they're going to actually win their first battle or their second. They will actually lose some. Things don't always go perfectly, right? There's no guarantee that when they cross the Jordan River triumphantly, they're not going to be unceremoniously thumped back across the river by the warriors of Jericho. No one knows. And yet they're making this bold decision to worship and celebrate what God has done and what they expect he will do. That is bold. It's even like brash. It seems crazy to do such a thing. It would make the most sense if they ran straight into battle, but they don't. And when they sit down to celebrate the Passover together, it's like they're, they're sending a message. 
They're not just remembering what God did. They're saying, we expect just as he did something miraculous then, he's going to do something miraculous all over again. That same sort of power is about to characterize our present moment. God promised it. We expect that it's going to happen. It's bold. They're sending a message to themselves and to everybody else. This is a boast in the Lord, an expression of their trust. And and when they do this, it's like God knows He can kind of take the safety net away. The way the story is told, it's after that moment where they celebrate the Passover that God says, enough with the manna. After 40 years of eating manna, they wake up to find it's not there any longer. And now God is feeding them with the produce of the land. It really is their home, right? Think about it. These people are eating food they've never even seen before in the desert. Because they're coming to a different kind of place, a land of flowing milk and honey, right? A place where the, the ground is fertile. And we don't know whose food they were eating. They certainly didn't grow it, right? They're eating somebody else's stuff, right? This is bold. This is a boast when they choose to do these things. God is honoring their act of trust. He's making clear that they're right to believe his promises. They're right to remember these things, that one way or another, He will make certain they eat. One way or another, he will make certain they have a home. Yahweh has promised it, and they can trust it, right? This is the thrust of the whole story, right? And all I could think this week, all I could think is that we have to be learning as as followers of Jesus to be marked by that same kind of bold joy. Because that's not an easy thing, right? In the face of your present circumstance, when everything else has faded, when you find yourself with the blinders on and all you can think about is how overwhelmed and anxious and fearful you are about the present moment, it is a hard thing to be bold and hopeful, to experience joy in that thing. But that's what's happening here. I was thinking about Psalm 27 all week. We read it uh, Tuesday night. Because I'd been reflecting on it. From the moment I read Joshua 5, all I could think about was David in Psalm 27. Throughout Psalm 27, if you're familiar with it, David just keeps referencing his enemies. How he's surrounded, how his enemies sometimes overwhelm him. But he he refuses to be afraid. And as you get to the end, it is so rich. David makes this statement. He says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Ours is a hope that is not in some distant future in heaven. Ours is a hope that characterizes this life, these days. I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living, right? That is a bold statement to make in the face of your enemies. But it's what David is saying. In the face of the wilderness, right? In the face of permacrisis, in the face of the continuous, incoherent presence, Silent about yesterday, we remember God is faithful. God is good. There is a joy, right? We choose to boldly celebrate not only what God has done, but the good things that are to come for his people. God has done, God is doing, and he will do, right? This is what anchors us, becoming a a joyful people. Because we live in a culture where the news is perpetually bad, It's perpetually bad. It's always given with this negative spin, right? It's always coming in day after day. 
And yet, we are called to be a people who are unique in the way we approach the present, the circumstance, the news. We are people who are boldly joyful in the face of what's being said. Because the irony is, the news is never actually new, right? It's the same thing with like a different flavor, maybe. It's the same thing over and over again. It's negative, it's hopeless, it's uncertain, who knows what's coming. What's unique, what's new, is a group of people who refuse to be slaves to the present circumstance, who refuse to be overwhelmed by it and choose to be joyful in the midst of it. And I don't mean to endorse triumphalism, right? I don't mean that we become a people who ignore pain and suffering and injustice that's happening around us or in our own lives. If anything, what I would say is that as followers of Jesus, we ought to mourn more deeply the things that are going on around us, right? We ought to be a people who mourn more deeply the things that we see happening on a global level, in our city, whatever it might be. We ought to be people who know how to mourn deeply. And yet, we ought to be a people who know how to hope more intensely than all of these other people, who know how to experience joy in a different kind of way in the face of it, right? This is who we ought to be. I was thinking about Hebrews 12. It's, it's verse 2. Speaking of Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Now, here's what we know about Jesus. Jesus mourns the cross. He mourns the cost. He mourns what's being asked of him. He gets to Jerusalem and he weeps over the city because he knows how broken this place is. He knows what they're about to do to him. He gets to Gethsemane and he mourns the cross. Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. When he comes to the cross, he cries out the words of the psalmist in Psalm 22. Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He mourns it deeply, and yet the author of Hebrews says it was for joy that he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured that. He was just as overwhelmed by it. His present was just as overwhelming as yours is. And yet for the joy set before him, he endured it. Jesus knew there was joy on the other side of the cross. And Joshua was telling us, right, you ought to know there's joy on the other side of the wilderness. Like you, you find yourself in a really overwhelming moment maybe. Somebody you love is in one of those really painful and overwhelming moments. There seems to be nothing before it and nothing beyond it. Nothing of hope to look forward to. And there's this reminder constantly in Scripture. There is something on the other side of the wilderness. It is not purpose. There is joy on the other side of the cross that Jesus asks us to carry. He says, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot follow me unless you take up your cross, right? That seems like a very painful thing to ask of your disciples. And yet we know Jesus is saying that with the awareness of the joy that is on the other side of the cross he's asking you to carry. He knows resurrection, new creation, that's what's on the other side of it. New life is on the other side of your wilderness, of the pain you're walking through. This is the reminder continually in Scripture. There's joy 
on the other side of the thing you're walking through. And we ought to be a people who know how to embrace that, who are learning joy. I think it's a discipline for me. I've learned that in the last couple of years. Like, this is a thing I have to remind myself of because it doesn't come naturally all the time. Like, we have to discipline ourselves so that we learn to be joyful people, that we refuse to be slaves to the continuous, incoherent present. People who believe only their present circumstance is what exists and everything else doesn't matter. No. We see ourselves, we orient ourselves in the story. There's joy. There's hope on the other side of the wilderness. And as the, the band comes and we move toward the table, there's this reminder. At the table, we're getting a taste of that joy. What we remember when we come to the table is not just what Christ did in the cross, but his promise that he's coming to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we believe. And that ought to stir a joy within us. At the table, we are tasting of that joy, tasting of that thing that God has for us on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the wilderness. And so that's what we want to invite you to. Uh, we're going to move into worship. We invite you to come uh, toward the table in these moments. They'll play a song, and then I'll come back up uh, and lead us through it. But if you would pray with me. Father, I thank you for these moments you give us of clarity. God, I pray this moment is characterized by clarity, by understanding um, wisdom for our present moment, God, so that we are a people who know what you have done before and what you have in mind beyond our present moment. God, would you orient us in these moments, in your promises, in who you are, in your faithfulness toward us. Help us to see it Mark us with it that we might be a people who are boldly joyful, boldly hopeful in the face of what's going on. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.